This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. Welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly talking about today's biggest cultural issues, all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and as always, I am joined by my good friend and co-host, John Rabe. John, great to see you. Great to see you, Rob. It's uh, always a pleasure to be together to talk to the fantastic guests that we have here on the City of God podcast. And today is no exception. Uh, We are introducing an interview with a good friend of ours. Um, You know, there's a, there's a lot that we've been seeing. You and I on this podcast talk a lot about critical theory uh, and the way that Marxist critical theory has worked its way into our culture. And um, sometimes people will be like, oh, come on. No, you really start to see it. It's happening possibly at your workplace. If you mm-hmm. have a, a DEI office, a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion office where you work, that's critical theory actually being put into practice. Um, the accusation is made for basically anyone who has as a conservative or Christian point of view, well, you're a racist. And that's one of the ways that discussion is shut down, to just try to label you, you're phobic, you're racist, you're homophobic, you're transphobic. You know, we'll just we'll just turn it into some pathology and then we can shut you up. But the reality is that these are things that are that are manifestations of critical theory. They are man they are themselves racist and divisive. The Supreme Court this summer made a massive decision this past summer overturning uh what was race-based selection on the parts of universities uh, in their admissions process? Uh, a huge step towards removing these these artificial categories as major categories in our culture, and yet uh, it's it's raised a war. And we we have that to uh, we have somebody who's extremely well qualified to talk about. Absolutely, all that. No, nobody better to talk to than Dr. Carol Swain, who spent her whole career in academia, and she has uh, spent uh, this next season of her life uh, now that she's out of the university system, which I think she's grateful for, mm-hmm. uh, no longer at Vanderbilt University. Um, uh, but now she's spending her career talking about uh, discrimination. She's talking about race issues. She's talking about affirmative action, but all from a biblical worldview, yes. exposing that the uh, social, the modern social justice movement is nothing more than another attempt uh, to reinvent Marxism, uh, to reintroduce reintroduce Marxism into the public square, and she has done a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of writing on this topic, and her new book, uh, which is The Adversity of Diversity, uh, has just come out, and we have the opportunity to talk to her about what led her to write that book and why it's important, particularly for Christians in North America. And we talked to her a little bit about her personal story, her personal journey, because it's really important to this discussion. Carol herself is an African-American woman from, uh, you know, from a, a, a essentially an impoverished background who uh, has made it to the point where she was a, a uh, professor at Princeton, a professor, a law professor at Vanderbilt University, extremely accomplished uh, and also able to step back and examine these issues from a biblical point of view and see that that the things that are being put in place supposedly to increase diversity are 
in one sense, a very surface level diversity, but actually result in division and battle, which is what we see all around us today and, and helps us point the way forward to better ways of doing these things, which is not by identifying everybody first and foremost by their intersectional characteristics, race, sexuality, gender, et cetera. A- absolutely. So we'll have an opportunity to explore her new book, talk about affirmative action, talk to her about diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that are we are seeing in uh, all over uh, North America, whether it's in corporate America or in the university system. Uh, Carol Swain is a regular contributor to our ministries, both Coral Ridge Ministries and also the Institute for Faith and Culture, where she serves as a senior fellow. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Carol Swain. We've got the great Dr. Carol Swain uh, with us on the City of God podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Now, you are actually, I'll just let our listeners know, uh, as we're recording this, uh, Dr. Swain is down uh, in Fort Lauderdale, getting uh, ready to teach a course on cultural Marxism uh, with the Institute for Faith and Culture. So we are really looking forward to this weekend and what you have to say about this important topic. I'm excited about this topic. And uh, the uh, progressives say that there's no such thing as cultural Marxism. And the last uh, few years I was teaching in in uh, at Vanderbilt University, if you were to Google cultural Marxism, you'd get articles about cultural Marxism. And now that mostly they say it doesn't exist. So uh, we can call it neo-Marxism. I don't care if they call it neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. That's what I'm going to be teaching about this weekend. And I'm excited because it's my first time teaching since I left Vanderbilt. That's Hmm. awesome. That is awesome. Well, we're blessed to have you down here. And you just wrote a new book, The Adversity of Diversity. Um, I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy of it and offering my endorsement to it. Just such a important word from you uh, for people to really wake up to what's happening in this conversation regarding diversity. What led you to write this book? And, And share with our audience a little bit about what this book is about. Well, first of all, I have been grappling with those ideas uh, about diversity uh, training being off the rails a long time ago. Back maybe five years ago, I had a book manuscript, uh, Why Diversity Training is All all Wrong. Mm -hmm. And that book argued that um, the approach that was being used actually uh, got the opposite of what they said. And it led corporations to get rid of their best talent and that it was off the rails back five years ago. And I abandoned that project. And it, one of the contributions of this new book is that it ties together the connection between affirmative action, uh, critical race theory, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And sometimes people like to think of affirmative action as being totally separate from DEI and CRT, and that's not the case. And what led me to write it was when the U.S. Supreme Court took the uh cases from University of North Carolina and Harvard, the Asian students that were challenging race-based affirmative action, I knew that was significant, but I also felt that the court had to strike down race-based affirmative action because DEI and CRT had become so aggressive that they clearly violated the Constitution and Equal Protection Clause, and that if the court had not struck down race-based affirmative action, I didn't see a way that you could end the racism and what was taking place with DEI and CRT. And so the book argues that uh, DEI uh, violates the Constitution 
and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in the same way as race-based affirmative action, and that uh, it's really on life support. And so part of what this book does it does is give people the information they need to help pull the plug. That's great. And Dr. Swain, we always appreciate you being with us. You're always great to our ministry. And particularly today, I have to say, people who are listening and watching, uh, they're not here in the room and, and people need to know what a trooper you are because it is, Rob, what would you say, 85 degrees in this room right At now? Least. <laughs> and uh, it is hot, it is humid, and uh, you've persevered to be with us and, and we appreciate that. The book is extraordinarily well taught because of that of that court case that you refer to. But let's lay down a little bit of the groundwork, if you would. Those are words that people are used to thinking of as good things. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Who's against diversity, equity, inclusion? But when we talk about DEI as it's applied to schools, as it's applied to corporations, as it's applied to institutions, there is a particular meaning and agenda that's in diversity, equity, and inclusion, isn't there? It is. And before we actually get to those mm-hmm. definitions, uh, the chapter two of that book talks about my own uh, journey in, a, in an affirmative action mm. uh, infused world. I don't remember the exact title, but part of my story is I was a high school dropout, one of 12, born and raised in rural poverty. And uh, my I, I, I got a high school equivalency and went to a community college and got the first of five college and university degrees. And, you know, people steered me and pushed me and uh, basically recruited me into academia. And so I have experienced all these things. Mm. And one of the criticisms that some people might want to say is, you benefited from race-based affirmative action. You're trying to pull up the ladder. One of the main arguments of the book is that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that ended discrimination on the basis of race, sex, um, uh, creed, um, uh, religion, Mm -hmm. and the various things, and now disability, back in 1964, we got it right. And I would say I benefited from uh, a change in society where they actively recruited talented minorities from uh, groups that had been uh, left out because of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And then, so you had the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which I think most Americans came together. 80% of Republicans supported that legislation, uh, uh, more than, I think, about 70% of Democrats, even though Democrats filibustered it. Mm. They had the longest filibuster in uh, history over that Civil Rights Act. But I think Americans came together in the 1960s. They wanted a colorblind society. So 1964, we had the Civil Rights Act passed, prohibiting discrimination in in numerous areas. Then 1965, the Voting Rights Act passed. 1968, the Open Housing Act passed, uh, ending discrimination. So we were equal under the law. And then affirmative action, that was never a law that was passed by both houses of Congress and signed by a president. That was executive orders starting with John Kennedy. Mm. And at the time he issued the first executive order about affirmative action, it needed to be done because there was discrimination. It applied to federal contractors. Uh, Then we had the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That should have been enough. But then Lyndon Johnson was elected. 1965, he gave the famous Howard 
university commencement address where he gave the imagery of the shackled runner, mm. that you don't take a shackled runner, bring him to the front of a line, uh, tell him to compete with all the rest and believe you've been fair. And so he brought in the preferential treatment part. Mm. The Civil Rights Act of the ni- the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 60s, there were never demands for racial preferences or quotas. It was about um, non-discrimination and equal opportunity. And that was the goals. But what happened was white male elites from the uh, Democrat side and the Republican side. In fact, it was Richard Nixon that brought us quotas. They were the ones that pushed because after the riots, long before you all were born, (laughs) of the 1960s, uh, people felt that progress wasn't happening fast enough. And so they moved to preferential treatments, which really um, benefited a lot of the better off minorities. Mm -hmm. And even now, with the race-based college admissions, the main beneficiaries have been immigrant blacks and blacks from more affluent backgrounds. And so that's how we got from what the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was trying to accomplish to the quota and affirmative action regime. And back uh, in the 1970s and 80s, too, diversity uh, used to meant diversity programs or whatever. Mm -hmm. It used to be that in the Office of Affirmative Action, and and every major institution had an affirmative action uh, division, they would send out recruiters, and they would go to historically black or Hispanic or Native American colleges and universities, and they would seek talented individuals or women. And so that's what diversity used to mean, bringing people into these institutions. But once they got there, they were supposed to um, compete with everyone else. And I always say that um, I benefited from the uh, non-discrimination, the equal opportunity, and the recruitment. And once you got recruited into institutions, you could, um, you had an equal opportunity to fail. Mm-hmm. And so many people failed along the way. So that's what diversity used to mean. Today, it means bringing in people as members of discrete groups and then retaining that group identity, them setting up affinity groups within the institution. And in my day, we sought integration, bring in racial and ethnic minorities. They became part of the whole. They became part of the team with diversity and inclusion. They want people to come in and it's a lot about feelings, to feel mm-hmm. that they are uh, uh, included, to feel comfortable. And, you know, when you're dealing with somebody's brain and their emotions, how can you, you can't guarantee how anyone's going to feel. Right. Especially a young person, because as a young, I remember when I was young, <laughs> you go through a range of emotions. Sure. You know, and you, yeah. someone doesn't speak to you and you wonder if they're upset with you. You have all of these thoughts. But inclusion is not the same as integration. And in my day, equal opportunity meant you got your foot in the door. You had an equal opportunity mm. to succeed or fail. Today, uh, they want equity, mm. equal outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not the same as the diversity of the 1970s mm. and 80s. The inclusion is not the same as integration. The equity is not the same as equal opportunity. And, uh, and these um, new concepts are rooted in Marxism, mm. in the cultural Marxism and neo-Marxism, and they're closely related to critical race theory, and they are a layer on top of affirmative action that's far more aggressive, and it doesn't even pay lip service to the law. 
Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Instead of the uh, class warfare of Karl Marx, we've just replaced it with race warfare, gender warfare. I mean, just constantly pitting groups against each other, all in the name of what you just said, equity, uh, which is not equal opportunities, it's equal outcomes. I think that's an important distinction. Now, this book, The Adversity of Diversity, is timely because it was released just after a significant Supreme Court decision striking down race-based discrimination. Tell us a little bit about that decision and your thoughts on uh, the conclusion of the Supreme Court. Okay, the book is timely because 90% of it was written uh, before the decision, Mm -hmm. and the 10% had to wait for the decision. And (laughs) there was always the possibility that the court would get it wrong, Mm -hmm. not strike it down, and then the whole book would have had to be rewritten yeah. and it wouldn't you know it may, might have been less interesting but it would be about how the affirm, how the supreme court missed an opportunity and the cases uh, that came out of um, Harvard University and the University of North Carolina uh, they challenged the quota systems that many elite institutions have set up that worked against asian students in the same way that they had quotas against jews at one point mm. and um the Asian students tend to be the high-scoring students, and it's because they work the hardest. There have been studies to show um, that Asian students study more than any other group. So if you look at students by uh, the amount of time they spend studying, Asians at the top, uh, Caucasians are second, uh, then maybe Hispanics, then maybe blacks at the bottom. Blacks spend the least amount of time studying, uh, even no matter if they come from higher socioeconomic status. They just they spend more time watching TV, and uh, that accounts for some of this this the uh, disparities. But the Asian students brought that lawsuit, uh, and what we find today with progressives is that they have no problem discriminating against white people because they're white, or Asians because they because they're successful. Uh, and so um, the Supreme Court made the right decision. And they have also taken a case, and I don't know the name of that case, involving the K-12 through education that they will probably rule on next year because there were some elite uh, schools. Uh, I think it was one might be the Boston Latin School where you had to meet certain criteria to get in. They had admission standards, admission tests, competitive tests for, the, for, for K-12 through kids to enter these schools. Well, they have relaxed the standards to such a degree that it's much harder to have standards at those mm-hmm. institutions. So that's being challenged. It's interesting. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, as as you deal with these issues, you have your own personal experience as well. And, and you talked about uh, the the accusation that's made. And, and Clarence Thomas gets this same thing, of course, who was very important in the decision we're talking about. Uh, Clarence Thomas gets the same thing. Oh, you benefited from all this, and now you want to pull the ladder up behind you. Uh, to me— it, President George W. Bush, uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, made a remark that has always stuck with me that I I think is really telling. He talked about what he called the soft bigotry of low expectations. And Mm -hmm. it seemed, you know, you're a very accomplished woman. You're a a law professor. You were a law professor at Vanderbilt, professor at Princeton, uh, you know, and, and what ends up happening is that 
the accomplishments of someone like you, the accomplishments of someone like Clarence Thomas end up being diminished by the same people who claim that they're offering some sort of gift because the subtle accusation is you didn't really earn it. You didn't really merit it. This was a gift from us, which is really sort of more racist than any of the things it, they're it accusing is. the rest of and us. And there's of. no way you can defend yourself against it. And that includes white women. So mm-hmm. white women, because they are one of the beneficiaries of the Civil Rights Act. In fact, some studies would say that they were the main beneficiaries of the Civil Rights Act. So they were the ones that got in first. Uh, there's no way you can defend yourself. But when it when I think about my accomplishments, I was a high school dropout, GED, but I went to a community college. You didn't even need a GED to get into that community college. <laughs> and I took uh, remedial math, but I graduated with a two-year degree in business in two years. And while I was there, I was hired by the uh, community college library full-time job uh, with state benefits nights and weekends. And uh, and I wanted to be a store manager, uh, started applying for jobs, and I was told I needed a four-year degree. Uh, I decided that I also needed stronger applications. I had made the dean's list a couple of times, but um, I actually uh, purchased and checked out books on how to make A's in college, how to take mm, SA mm. exams, how to do objective tests. I applied the principles, and I graduated magna cum laude from a four-year college, they probably had 20 blacks, and I won the criminal justice prize. That was my major. And um, and I had colleges and universities all across the country trying to recruit me. And at that time, when I was graduating my four-year degree, I decided that uh, I didn't want a criminal justice career, that I was going to work for the government, went to Virginia Tech, and while I was there, my professors put a lot of pressure on me to uh, continue my education. Mm-hmm. And there was a recession in the 1980s. When were you born? 1980. Okay. Well, when you were four years old. <laughs> 68 for I was me. At, I, was, I was around a little uh, longer. I was at Virginia. Uh, I was at Virginia <laughs> Tech and made the decision uh, to go to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, uh, and you know, like I was painfully shy, uh, and could never have imagined uh, becoming a professor. But I was heavily recruited gave conference papers and got a signing bonus to go to Princeton, got early tenure, mm-hmm. won national prizes. I've been cited by the Supreme Court. I was a hot shot, mm. uh, but it doesn't matter. Like, I won the highest prize in political science. If I was a white male, it would be the career prize. I mean, it was the, it's like the Nobel Prize for political scientists. Uh, because I am black, It did not. I didn't get the same benefit because mm-hmm. you can discount it. It has to be affirmative action. There's no other way to account for it but affirmative action. And so that's the situation that affirmative action puts blacks in. And today, um, my position has always been that affirmative action should be race neutral and means tested. And what has always bothered me is that uh, when it discriminates against particular groups, because I've always had a heart for that poor white male in Appalachia whose parents never finished the second grade that's living in a hollow but has a brilliant mind. Mm. And so J.D. Vance, you know, when he sure wrote have. about his relatives. Uh, elegy. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. And uh, and one of the things that really makes me different, and uh, this the adversity of diversity follows my book, uh, Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. Uh, it hurts me to see 
children shamed and bullied because of the color of their skin. The people that say it's wrong to discriminate against racial and ethnic minorities don't have a bit of problem discriminating against little white kids, sending them home crying mm. about something their ancestors uh, supposedly did. And I believe, um, I feel like God has called me for this hour to be a civil rights advocate for all people. And that's why I do what I do. And my books, um, the, the recent ones have been much shorter and they're much shorter because I want them to be read and they're written to be read by the average people. They have documentation and the, the book that you have in your hand, uh, Mike Toll, the uh, co-author there, he um, is someone that has worked with me. He actually published the book. Uh, I have my own label, mm. Be the People Books. Mm -hmm. And Mike uh, used to be a sports writer for the Tennessean, and he was downsized. So you get rid of the white men first. He's in his 60s. He's a white male. <laughs> and uh, and so he sort of set up his own business. So he helped with the cover design and the pagination and all the work of how you make a book a book. That, that's Mike's expertise. And... Uh, so we are two 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 man show. <laughs> <laughs> All getting awesome. it done, and, and we're excited about this book. Once again, it's the adversity of diversity. I just want to read the subtitle: How Real Unity Training Can Promote Healing in a Post Affirmative Action World. And that leads me to my next question. So, uh, you, the critics will say, uh, Doctor Swain, uh, getting rid of affirmative action uh, will cause our colleges, universities, and workplaces to lack any real diversity. That's racism. Mm. Explain that. It's racism because there were blacks uh, and Hispanics and Native Americans and a everyone getting into college before affirmative action. In fact, Harvard University uh, admitted its first black student in 1869. And in the early 1930s, W.E.B. Du Bois got his uh, Ph.D. from uh, Harvard. And the Journal of Blacks on Higher Education, based in New York City, uh, every now and then they would do a, a journal where it looks at blacks throughout history. And I remember, the, I remember them doing a journal that had all of these black alumni from schools from uh, New England and places that never discriminated, that they've always had black alumni. They just didn't have them in large numbers. And like Princeton and Harvard and places like that, they started admitting blacks, you know, in the 1960s, uh, 19—I mean, Harvard was already admitting them. But with Princeton, uh, 1960s, early on, uh, even Roanoke College, my alma mater, uh, they uh, started admitting blacks uh, in the 1960s. And so there were blacks that being admitted, but not in huge numbers. And when we look at— um, you know, the aftermath of slavery and all of the stuff that we hear about slavery, a lot of what people focus on, you know, about America's racism, but they overlook the fact that America had a birth date and was 1776. It wasn't 1619, but uh, they overlook um, uh, Booker D. Washington mm -hmm. and the Tuskegee Institute and George Washington Carver and the fact that uh, Black Wall Street uh, in uh, Tulsa, we talk about how there, there was this prosperous black community was burned to the ground. 
uh, but we don't focus on what what uh, Bob Whitson would say we should focus on, the fact that black people had a community that was so prosperous that they were the envy of everyone around. Mm-hmm. And this was before uh, government set-asides and affirmative action and, and whatever, but they were they were making it happen. And the first uh, uh, female millionaire, self-made millionaire, was a black woman. Um, the, the the lady, Madam Curry, the woman that came, no, that's not Madam, I'm going to forget her name, and then everyone's going to laugh at me. Um, uh, but sh- the woman who came up with the straightening comb and how to straighten mm. black hair. Um, so, I mean, black people have been making it happen throughout uh, the, the, the century. And even among some of the free blacks, oh, we, you know the controversy uh, involving uh, Ron DeSantis and... Um, the Black History Program. Mm-hmm. Sure, here in and Florida. And so part of that controversy had to do with a statement that was made that some blacks, what what was it about they benefited economically? But it had to do with the fact that they got trades that had value, and they were allowed to either work on the side yeah. or work mm-hmm. uh, independently. And so they made money because they had skills. And uh, the first uh, blacks that came to America, they were indentured servants. So after seven years, they were set free, and they were set f- free with skills. And so many of the uh, black elites, the Martha's Vineyard types, they are descendants of free blacks mm-hmm. because they came from the indentured servants. They had skills and they became very wealthy. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And but heaven, if you talk about that, you uh, you are going to get in trouble culturally very quickly. And uh, as as many have discovered, um, as we push towards the, the end here, uh, one of the things I actually want to ask both of you uh, and, and Rob, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. But from a from a Christian standpoint, how should we be looking at this? We recognize there's a there's an issue of of racial injustice that's taking place. That's that's being perpetrated in the name of racial justice as it's really a question for both of you. So what, from a Christian standpoint, how uh, should we be looking at this? Why is this a concern to us as we talk about the, the city of God? Well, first, let me yeah. say this so that I can redeem myself. The first black millionaire was Madam C.J. Walker. Oh, there you go. Good. All right. Very on the record. Okay. Yes, on the record. On the like right. a good professor. We got right. it. And she, as you see, those watching, she did it without notes. She didn't check her phone. She just said, well, I, I want doctors. My... <laughs> Memory banks. Yeah, we all got to work through the file cabinets. I want Dr. Swain to have the last word on this, but I think as a pastor, it's important to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone can bring the healing that our culture longs for. Mm. Uh, To say that our culture and our society is broken is a true statement. The problem is we're coming about it at a hundred different ways. And the (laughs) the majority is saying we go about it through a system and a theory that is rooted in cultural Marxism. Which is making it worse. A- absolutely. Yeah. Which is, and, 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 and forgive me, but when I hear pastors say, well, there's certain things we can glean from theories like critical race theory, I say, are you kidding me? A theory rooted in Marxism, which is rooted in atheism. How in the world can we glean anything from that? When I read Ephesians 2, I read, this, I read Paul exhorting the Ephesian church as saying that Christ has broken down the dividing wall yep. between Jew and Gentile. That was the hostile, uh, that was the, the the group that was most hostile to the Gentile community, the, the Jewish people in the first century. And, and, and 
Paul wants to remind them that that wall of hostility has been broken down, not through critical race theory, not through Marxism, not through any of the other worldly ideas. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, I'll go in a room and we'll give you uh, training to be uh, racially (laughs) sensitive to one another. No, he said it was the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem is, I wonder, do most Christians actually believe the gospel has the power to do that? Instead, we've privatized the Christian faith and we have allowed the secular elites to lead the charge in our colleges and universities, on entertainment and media, and of course, in our government. Well, I mean, I agree with all of that. And our seminaries have been infected with the Marxism through liberation theology and some of the things that uh, have seeped seeped into the seminaries. Replace biblical justice with social justice. Yes. And uh, one of the things that uh, that's very troubling for me is uh, I am now a Southern Baptist, but but I came in and sort of charismatic. Oh, well, then you know that in 2009, they adopted a resolution that said that um, uh, critical race theory and intersectionality could be used as analytical tools. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, to help us understand race. And uh, and to me, that was very shocking because the gospel of Jesus Christ, have it has everything we need to understand race and to get along. There's no way you would turn to a Marxist theory rooted in conflict uh, theory to be able to think you're going to get any kind of racial reconciliation. And I think so many pastors, when they do have black members and, you know, some of the, some of the churches, Southern Baptists, that maybe they have only a few. Maybe they have one family or two families. And I don't think that's racism. I think that we have different preferences for music, how long we think a church service should go. And <laughs> sure. just, uh, there are reasons why we choose our churches. We choose our music. We choose our food. Mm-hmm. So we choose our churches. But sometimes pastors would defer to the racial and ethnic minorities and 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 they have we've sort of been groomed as minorities to have a chip on our shoulders. We can always find something wrong. And when people harken back to slavery, I think uh, a good pastor would show them those scriptures on forgiveness. And um, and so, like, it's not a something a Baptist uh, uh, apologize all the time like the Southern Baptists. I've counted no less than five apologies, and I probably missed some for slavery and the mistakes that they have made. And to me, that's unbiblical because if we believe that God forgives our sins, you don't have to keep repeatedly confessing and asking for forgiveness for the same sin of your ancestors. And I see that being done, and I believe that the social justice, that it was a very strategic Marxist plan to get into the churches, and when I teach my course this weekend, I will uh, share the Cleon Scalson's mm. 1958, which 45 current communist goals. And one was to infiltrate the church and move it away from uh, the gospel of Jesus to social gospel. And that's what has been done. Yep, absolutely. And you go even further back, Karl Marx said, if this movement is going to work, we're going to get we're going to need to attack the educational system, the nuclear family and the the, the houses of worship. And, and here we are Marxists for decades have been doing just that. Well, I'm, I am so grateful that you are here with us once again, Dr. Carol Swain with her new book, The Adversity of Diversity. We'll get that on the camera there. Forward from Alan Dershowitz, no less. Forward by Alan Dershowitz, absolutely. How Real Unity Training Can Promote Healing in a Post-Affirmative Action World. Also, uh, 
We welcome you here this weekend for the Institute for Faith and Culture course on cultural Marxism. So really looking forward to that. But more importantly, just thank you that you are speaking truth to power and that you're not willing to back down because these conversations are so important, as I said in the beginning, not just for the current generation, but for future generations to come. So God be with you in your ministry and in your calling. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I want to thank you once again for listening to the City of God podcast and this episode where we interviewed Dr. Carol Swain. If you benefited from this interview, encouraged, inspired by it, we pray that you would pass this along to a family member, a friend uh, that might benefit from hearing the topics that we discussed as we together explore what it means to be the people of the City of God as we explore today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. We pray that you join us next time. And until then, may God richly bless you. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast where Christ meets culture.